this morning's message, we're continuing in this uh, series that we're calling Fight for Joy. Uh, this morning, the sin of sloth will be in our crosshairs. And uh, I'll just start with a bit of a confession. I have not seen Ice Age. And so I have no idea if Sid the Sloth is going to be an accurate depiction of sloth. I have seen Zootopia and found it to be wildly hilarious to see that it was sloths working in the DMV. Uh, But regardless of your understanding of these animated films, I, I don't know that it would be wise for us to allow Disney or Hollywood to help us define what sin is. One of the things I'm I'm hoping you might have seen throughout this series is that in order for us to identify sin, understand it, we need to explore some of the nuance of it. We've looked at greed and anger and lust, and each one of these might be more complex of an issue than maybe you did thought before. That's why Jesus uses that grammatical expression. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He wants us to see that sin is maybe deeper than what we would have previously thought. He wants us to see sin as maybe darker than what we previously thought. And I can tell you, as, as I've been in this series, in some ways I thought, you know, a, a seven-week series on the seven deadly sins, that's going to be a, a short series. But I have felt a kind of weight in this. And in some ways, as I prepared for this morning's message, felt this is kind of like our halftime talk. A halftime pep talk. And I am no Vince Lombardi. I am no Jason Kelsey. You are not going to hear an inspirational message from me. But what I, what I hope happens in this session this morning is that God would open our eyes up or awaken us to a kind of spiritual sloth that would rob us of joy to come. And so maybe my encouragement for you is if you've felt the weight of these past three weeks, this morning I hope will be an encouragement to your soul. And as you look forward ahead to the next three weeks, that you would still feel like the Lord is in this. The Lord has good work for me. No matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, it's not over. There is still time on the clock. No matter how far behind you might feel, maybe you feel like you've wasted a lot of your time, that this morning might be an opportunity for us to remember as long as God has given me breath, he has given me good work to do. And so I would hope that the, the spirit, and as we look at the testimony, really the Apostle Paul will be providing the inspirational message, but I'm praying that it's the spirit that's at work within us. So I want to pray one more time before we uh, turn to Philippians chapter 3. And Father, we confess that in our own strength, we are unable to do the thing that we want that you have given us your word and we have found ourselves unable to meet your standard. And we want to confess that to you as our gracious, loving Father in heaven. And Lord, I, I, I though, though I know that you have saved us from all different backgrounds, that your desire for us is not to stay where we were when you saved us, but like we said last week, to grow in holiness become more and more like you. And so, Father, I pray that you would direct our attention to your word in a way that would help us uh, to know, to see and savor you in greater ways. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to to get us going, I want to look at a handful of um, 
Proverbs that might set the stage for us. Uh, the Proverbs are a book of wise sayings. So if you go back in the Old Testament, uh, and these sayings are more like general principles than they are promises. They, they tend to focus on the probabilities of things rather than what will exactly happen. Uh, they don't focus on the exceptions to the rule. If you wanted to learn about the exceptions to these Proverbs, you might read Job or Ecclesiastes. Um, but these Psalms, or I'm sorry, these Proverbs are essentially applied truth to live in wise ways in the world. If we applied these wise sayings, uh, we would find ourselves walking in uh, line with the truth of the gospel, not cutting across the grain of God's will. And as I show you these Proverbs, maybe like we did in anger, maybe uh, for those who are any kids in the room, to consider what might sloth look like. So here are three uh, to get us started. There we go. So Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard. Now some of your translations will say uh, sluggard, some will say lazy man, some will say slothful man, but we're getting at this concept of an idea. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent man is richly supplied. 1924, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Maybe you're, you're getting a, an idea of a man who has a craving for something but an unwillingness to work uh, to get it. A craving for something but an unwillingness to actually move his hands to get what he, his heart desires. This one in uh, 6, 6 through 11. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like a... Now, it's true, honest, in a thousand ways. So we're not saying that anyone who's poor is a lazy man. But what he's saying is that there's a, a, a way in which the sluggard is trying to get away from responsibilities, to get what his heart needs. Last one, Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his face. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can never who answer sensibly. You can see again, he's got an excuse for why he won't go out and work. And he's coming up with all kinds of reasons, even as wild as there's a line in the, the reason I'm not going out to work, there's a line in the streets. He craves, he yearns, but he doesn't do the work. And so maybe in your mind, you can picture the kind of lazy sloth that the scriptures will describe. So he craves food, won't work to get it. He's the master procrastinator. He's always putting off to tomorrow, uh, to, yeah, to tomorrow what could have been done today. He's the guy who might want an A on a test, but he's unwilling to actually study for it until the very last moment and then cram just to get whatever he can in the last minute. 
He might be the husband who says, I want a wife who loves and respects me, but he's unwilling to invest personally and cultivate his marriage. Or maybe the parent who says, I want kids who honor and obey me, but who won't do the work to get their kids to honor and obey. They're they're, they're more content with where they're at. They're more content on their phone than to do the hard work of correcting, disciplining, playing with their kids after work. This is not a proverb, but... um, I I think that this one line, what does the sloth say? The sloth might say, I'll settle for today's small comforts over tomorrow's great joys. Not willing to risk the suffering, the pain, the heartache of actually trying to achieve something better. I'll just stick with where I'm at. I'll be content with what I have and I'm not going to strive for anything more. And so within that, I I, I want us deeply to believe that God has more for us than where we're at. That he doesn't want us to settle for today's comforts, to maybe just coast and drift through life, to not be spiritually slothful, but to move in. And so to do that, I want to look at the story of the Apostle Paul. And in a lot of ways, I really would love to maybe just break one of these verses down and, and uh, provide a message on the theology that Paul is describing. In fact, this passage is a great one if you want to study both justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, we're not going to dive deep down into mind the treasure that's in this text. But what I'm hoping to do is maybe capture the big picture uh, as we fly over Paul's life in uh, Philippians 3, 3 through 21. I'm hoping that we can see a kind of argument that happens when you put long pieces of uh, scripture together. I don't know, maybe in your personal uh, devotions, you just focus on one tiny verse and it's missing the greater context. Today, we're going to look at the greater context. Uh, We've got four different areas that we'll look at. uh, Paul's past, Paul's present, Paul's future, and then Paul's invitation. So let's read Philippians 3, verses Three through 21. Paul says, we put no confidence in human effort. That's the kind of verse that I would love to preach an entire message on. Those seven words, we put no confidence in human effort. Though, Paul says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Before the Apostle Paul came to faith, he's describing what his life was like. And it's clear from this just little section, Paul was not a slothful man. And so as we look at Paul, we're not going to be comparing, there was a time in Paul's life when he was slothful, and now he's not slothful, and how do you make sure that you're not slothful? No, Paul was diligent. He was fastidious. He was disciplined. He was diligent in his work. We can see that he was proud of his pedigree in verses 5. Circumcised on the eighth day, a purebred Hebrew of Hebrews, 
according to the tribe of Benjamin, a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest adherence to the law. When it comes to Judaism, Paul was top tier. He worked hard to get to the status that he was at. And in a lot of ways, he was not just proud of his pedigree, he was proud of his passion. He was passionate about his work. So zealous, in fact, that he's bragging about the fact that he would persecute his opposition. Paul was proud of his pedigree, proud of his passion, that he was so committed to his religious fervor. And what we see in this passage is that Paul doesn't feel this way anymore. Paul is no longer proud of his pedigree or his passion. And that brings me to my first point. And it's not going to be a profound point, but passion itself is not a virtue. Passion itself is not a virtue. Paul does not consider his previous passion for his old way of works righteousness to be something to be proud of. It's not a virtuous passion anymore in his eyes. Simply because he was passionate about it does not mean that it was good. And I think that argument makes sense. We all can probably think of people who, in our mind, are passionate about misplaced things. They have a misplaced passion in their life. So when I was in high school, uh, all of the guys that I was friends with wanted um, one thing. They were passionate about one thing, getting their car's audio system to be as loud and rumbly as possible. This is probably like a 90s thing. I don't know if kids these days care about it anymore, but uh, they, they worked hard at their jobs to buy preamps and head units and subwoofers that were uh, as big as your torso. And one of my friends, who will remain nameless, uh, had so many subwoofers in the back of his Ford Explorer that as we drove to the movies through Lancaster City, we would set off car alarms in Lancaster City because it rumbled so much. It was ridiculous. I've not asked him, but if I did, I, I would wonder, are you as passionate about your audio system today as you were when you were in high school? I would guess, you know, four kids later, no. He's not worried. That's not, he's not passionate about it anymore. We can see that there's a way in which we can have a misplaced passion. And, and maybe even in the church, these passions don't have to be frivolous things like sound systems, but maybe even good things. I'm going to give two examples of passions that I think are good and worthy, but in some ways might be able to get twisted or disordered in how we apply ourselves to them. And the first might be work. And the scriptures have a lot to say about work. We're not like others uh, but Christians don't demonize work. We don't consider work to be some sort of thing, some evil thing that came out of Pandora's box. As we study a scripture, uh, study the a theology of work, we realize that God has given us unique abilities, unique strengths, unique proclivities to accomplish good work in the world, to help the world flourish, to serve the good of one another. And so I'm not going to say that a passion for work is bad, but I want us to think for a moment, is there a way that we can become so passionate about our work that it might keep us from the calling that God has on other passions in our life? Can work become so important in our lives that it robs us from devoting ourselves to other passions that God might be calling us to? And the second one that I'll bring up is family and Obviously, family is an important thing. As believers, we believe that God loves when we love and care for our brothers and sisters. Or, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And what I want to ask is, though, as good as that is, is there a way that we can become 
too passionate about a good thing, about our family. I, I, I'm only recently married and we still have uh, not had our child. It's on its way in June. And I know that family is going to, you know, rearrange our time. I don't know how old I was when I realized how cool my parents uh, were before having kids. Uh, Maybe been when I found pictures of them skiing in Austria uh, or driving my dad's Corvette. Um, but when they had kids, they had a new passion. They had a new love, and that transformed how they spent their money. Is there a way that we become so passionate about something that it would rob us of, maybe it's the fact that there's just only so many hours in the day. 168 hours in a week. And if we're passionate about family and we've got cousins' birthdays to go to and we've got holidays with both sides of in-laws and we've got kids' sports and camps, is it possible that we've become so passionate about our families that it squeezes out the other time in our life? Which maybe connects to the next idea that's related is that busyness itself is not a virtue. Just because you're busy doesn't mean you're virtuous. Maybe we say that we're busy because we don't want to be accused of being slothful. So when someone asks, you know, how are you doing? What, what's a good answer that we kind of uh, know is going to get us off the hook? I'm busy. I'm so busy. And what's that translate to is I'm important. I'm not being slothful. I'm not lazy. I am busy. And sometimes when we hear people say that they're busy, we're like, yes, good, good for you. The idle hands are the devil's workshop. We, we applaud people's busyness as if busyness itself is a virtue, but you can be busy with a whole host of bad things. Ephesians 5 would have us, in some ways, audit our time. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil, 168 hours in a week. That's all you get. But everyone gets it. Everyone gets the same number of hours in a week. And so rather than be unwise with our time, the scriptures are calling us to be wise in how we use it. In conversations that I have with people about spiritual disciplines, the number one reason that I hear for people of, of why they do not invest in their own spiritual journeys because they don't have time. They don't have time to set apart for prayer. They don't have time to invest in the word. They don't have time to attend worship. They don't have time to serve. And what I'm thinking is, is that, well, everyone's got the same amount of time. Maybe it would just be more honest if we said, I just don't find that to be as important as other passions that I have in my life. My passion for family, my passion for work, my passion for pick your other good passion. Those things have become more important to me. And what I, what I think I'm trying to get at is that laziness or sloth is not just for those who would sit on their bed all day, but we might end up being slothful by being busy. Busyness might be the thing that we use to justify our laziness. I'm not going to do hard things or do the work to get great things. I'm just going to rest in what's comfortable. And one of the areas that I feel like can rob our attention, rob our time, is social media. And John Piper has uh, a kind of indicting statement here. Uh, he says, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. 
In other words, if we would audit our time and really break down just how many hours are we invested in our passions, invested in things that would rob or take our time, Piper's thinking, you know what? Prayerlessness might be able to be pointed to the fact that we were too busy. We cared more about Facebook and Twitter than we did about prayer. And I'll be honest, social media is one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has to keep us distracted from what's really important. Within the arsenal of social media are WMDs. I think that's, yeah, that's right. Weapons of mass distraction. And they know how to get our attention. In some ways, they feed, it's a psychological warfare. They know that if they can give you these intermittent rewards, these likes, these comments, these tags, and you don't know when it's going to happen, you end up being addicted, kind of like someone being addicted to a slot machine. You don't know when the next rush of endorphins is coming, so you stay glued to your phone. And the infinity scrolling that a lot of the social media apps have, that you, you will never reach the bottom of Instagram. You'll never reach the bottom of Pinterest. And YouTube itself is so powerful. I mean, it learns the things that you like. It might know you better than your spouse knows you. It knows, okay, you, you seem to like um, Ben Shapiro. Here are two million other videos that prove that you are smarter than the leftist SJWs. Oh, I see you like AOC. Here are two million other videos on uh, why Republicans hate the environment. It learns it what you want to see, and then it tailor-fits recommended videos that automatically start playing. I've searched for videos on fishing before, and an hour later found myself watching a 40-minute documentary on how they built the Hoover Dam. <laughs> it's, it's, it's silly, um, but it's true. And I, I will say that the, the, the current social media attention trap that I think is, um, uh, that I'm waging war against is TikTok. Uh, as youth pastor, I, uh, I tried to stay hip, I tried to stay current, but I've been out of that game for seven years, and so I, I, I just felt like when all these new things, Snapchat comes out, that's nah, a kid thing, TikTok comes out, that's for the kids, it's kind of like my VCR, it's the thing that I'm going to just say, I'll just leave that to the kids to figure out. With TikTok, though, uh, over Christmas break, uh, my sister um, tempted me into... Uh, I won't say destruction, but well, why don't I just show you my, my um, text feed here. So I don't know if you can see the um, time up here. It's Tuesday, December 29th, 7.26 p.m. My sister sends me a text. Can we start doing TikTok Tuesdays at 2? Uh, earlier, back in the day, we used to do YouTube Tuesdays at 2. Now, okay, I said, oh, that's got a nice ring to it because, you know, alliteration. And uh, she says, yeah, we'll just send each other 10 TikToks. And I said, uh, the only Tokyos I've seen are from you. Um, that's an autocorrect. I meant TikToks. So 7.26 p.m. Maybe it was the time slot here. Tuesday, December 29th, 10.24. Um, Lauren goes on to describe, yeah, these are better than YouTube. Um, uh, I said, well, I guess I should. This is where I gave in to temptation. And you can see that it wasn't distraction that led me there. It was the, the idea of I, I don't want to be not cool. I don't want to be an older fuddy-duddy. Um, and so I downloaded TikTok. And you can see at 1024, I sent uh, my sister my first TikTok. <sighs> Wednesday, December 30th, 12.15 a.m., I sent my sister a text. I just mindlessly scrolled through TikTok for four hours. 
And she responded, it's addicting. LOL, LOL, I should have told you. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you have kids and they have their devices, but to consider how much time. You know what was happening this week? I was starting a five-week sermon series. I was preaching uh, on Sunday of that week, and it was a busy week. At least I told people that I was busy. I have a lot to do to get ready for Sunday. But here's four to five hours that I spent mindlessly scrolling through TikTok. I said I was busy, but in reality, I had plenty of time. So I don't know that passion and busyness are always virtuous. I want to continue to read what Paul has to say. I once, Paul says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have disregarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become with him. Paul is describing a a massive change in his life. When he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he had a cosmic shift in his order of priorities. He had his passions completely redirected. Things that he once thought were so important to him no longer felt as important once he came to Christ. In fact, he considered those old things to be garbage. All of his trash, it's loss compared to the gain that he's finding in Christ. And what I think is, Paul is describing that in his previous life, he found his works-based righteousness to be an all-consuming passion in his life. He wanted to earn God's approval through good deeds. And so he devoted all of his time and effort and energy into becoming more holy in order to make God love him. And what makes that difficult is that Paul's conversion wasn't from being slothful to being diligent. It was from being passionate about earning God's favor to being passionate about resting in God's favor. And I think it might be difficult to see because to the naked eye, he is doing the same kinds of work. He was striving for holiness before he came to Christ, striving for holiness after he came to Christ, but there was a different reason for it. One, he was trying to earn God's favor. Now he's working because he already has. And in a church our size, I'm guessing there are probably some people like Paul who still are working hard. They are diligent. They might be teaching Sunday school. They might be uh, serving in hours and hours and hours, but they're doing so. They're striving and working. They're passionate about the church because they're trying to earn God's favor. And you can have someone who's just as passionate about working for God, doing, striving, serving, who's doing it for a very different motive. And that's why I think that sometimes sin is difficult to identify. It's not just the fruit that we're looking at. We need to get down into the root. And Paul, when he came to Christ, ended up having a shift from one passion to another. Uh, The scriptures would call this kind of shift from one passion to another, repentance. Paul is turning from his old and looking to what's new. He's turning away from or abstaining from passions of the flesh that wage war against his soul, and he is turning to God and embracing the joy that God has for him in Christ, living as citizens in this new kingdom. There's a a moment of repentance in a popular TV uh, movie that you might have seen a few years ago called The Greatest Showman. 
Um, in it, Hugh Jackman's character, uh, who is P.T. Barnum, um, towards the end of the movie, realizes that he had devoted himself to things in the past that were worthless to him. Now as he's come to his realization, this is not worth it. I'm going to turn. And so uh, he sings a song, uh, and here are the lyrics to it. He says, I saw, a man, uh, I saw the sun begin to dim and felt that winter wind blow cold. A man learns who is there for him when the glitter fades and the walls won't hold. Because from that rubble, what remains can only be what's true. If all was lost, there's more I gained because it led me back to you. He says, from now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart from now on. And that's when the ensemble comes in and they start singing and we will come back home. It's a powerful scene in the movie. And I think what, what happens is when your soul has been swallowed up by the glories of the gospel, you'll see that so many of the greatest stories in our film and literature are really just retellings of certain facets of the gospel. I think this scene is so powerful in the movie because I remember when I had that kind of moment and I realized from now on, I'm not going to be blinded by the lights. I'm not going to devote myself to this passion, but I'm going to turn and face Christ and move in this direction. One of the reasons that I know that Paul has had a severe change in his passion is that he's willing to suffer for it. Look at what we continue to read here. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, not flesh, like we said last week. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Here's the line. I want to suffer. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. And the reason that the sloth won't suffer, the sloth won't suffer because he does not love. Or to say it a little bit more poetically, the sloth will not suffer much because he does not love much. You know that when you love something, you're willing to easily sacrifice yourself for the good of others. The taking off your coat, gentlemen, and putting it on the shoulders of your lady, that's, that's what happens. You're willing to suffer the cold wind in order to make sure that the one that you love is well cared for. And you, would, you, you find actually pleasure in, in some ways, suffering for the good of someone else. Parents, you take advantage of this all the time when you sacrifice for your kids. The reason that you suffer is because you love your kids much. And the reason that husbands and wives will suffer, sacrifice for one another is because they love each other. What would we be willing to suffer for Christ? Would we be willing to suffer to give an hour in a week for worship? Would we be willing to suffer five minutes a day? What would it take for you to suffer an hour a day? What would it take for you to suffer? Well, I, I think it partly depends on what you believe the prize is. When I was in college, uh, I went to the theaters and I saw The Passion of the Christ. Um, 
So I was 22 years old when I realized that passion has an older definition than what I was accustomed to. I normally think of passion as zeal or uh, excitement about something, not realizing that when we talk about the passions of Christ, we're talking about the sufferings of Christ. That those who are passionate are willing to suffer for what they love. That's why I think it's a good name that our ministry uh, helping those who are suffering is called the Compassion Ministry. They are people who come alongside people who are hurting. And in some ways, we hurt along with them and help walk with them in their pain and suffering. Suffering in some ways proves what we love. And when Paul gained this new appreciation for being passionate about Christ, he was willing to suffer for him. The opposite of being willing to suffer would be to be passionless, to be apathetic, apathetic, without passion. In some ways, being spiritually covety. You've lost your sense of taste. You've lost your sense of smell. In some ways, you're numb to the joys of this world. Maybe like Thoreau's man who is living lives of quiet desperation. He's kind of like a zombie. He doesn't love much. He doesn't suffer much. He just goes through the motions. He's not so much lazy that he's neglectful, but he's not necessarily diligent because he's not striving. He's just going through the motions. Paul continues, if we read here, verse 12. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but... I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus suffered, uh, for which Christ Jesus first possessed for me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which Christ, through Jesus Christ, is calling us goes on and says, let all of us, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make that plain to you. We must hold on to the progress we've already made. So if we look at the uh, first part of that, perfect. Paul's describing the same kind of sanctification that we talked about last week. He's saying, I've not arrived at perfection though he has been justified and is fully and positionally holy in God's eyes, he recognizes that he's not there yet. He has not reached perfection. He has hope and faith in that future that's coming, and we'll read his allusion to glorification here in the next section. And so in this yellow sanctification phase, he is moving and striving. He's working to get to a point where he is holier and holier. That's what this whole series, in some sense, has been about. That we want to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. That we want to turn from being citizens of a former kingdom and learn to walk, learn to live as citizens in a new kingdom. The thing is, I don't know that we're going to be willing to take on this battle against anger and greed and lust and eventually gluttony, envy, and pride if we don't first battle this sin of sloth if we're simply content to drift through life, not striving, not passionate, 
just sort of going through the motions like a zombie through this world, waiting until the resurrection of our bodies. I don't know that we have a chance at battling these other sins. We need to first battle this spiritual sloth that would allow us to pick up the swords and then fight these other ones. It would be much easier for us just to rest, just to drift and coast through life, maybe sort of hoping that our previous passion when we were younger will help us get us over the finish line because Paul uses this athletic metaphor, which I think is interesting. He says this life is a race and he wants to run this race, this season of sanctification in a way to earn the prize. And it's wild for me to consider the kinds of ways that athletes will discipline themselves. I don't know if you know, LeBron James, of course you know who he is. Did you know that he is so committed to winning championships that he sleeps, he gets enough rest so that he's ready to work. He sleeps on average 12 hours a day. You might say, well, that sounds lazy. He's not lazy. He's doing that for a reason. He has his eyes on the prize. Michael Phelps, when he was in his Olympic heyday years, he would consume 8,000 to 10,000 calories in a day. That's four to five times more, it's probably more than that, than what I would need to sustain my normal everyday life. Why would he eat so much? He controlled his body in a way because he wanted to win. He knew he needed to fuel himself. Um, Conor McGregor and all of his MMA, uh, or maybe just wrestling fans, boxing fans, they're so committed to winning the prize that they'll go into uh, their fight a week ahead of time and cut 30 pounds in five days. They'll shed whatever is unnecessary so that they can compete and then fight for the prize. And that's why I asked earlier, what would we be willing to suffer? I think it might depend on how valuable is the prize that we're looking for? How valuable is the prize that Paul is talking about? For Christians, our prize is knowing and becoming like Christ. That's the prize that was all-consuming for Paul. That was the reason that he would move from one passion to the next passion. Seeing Christ, becoming like Christ, was the thing that captivated his soul. What I would fear is that Christians would put their prize in something else. We would be more concerned about an eternity free from suffering than we would knowing Christ. We'd be more concerned about being in heaven rather than hell. We'd be more concerned about having a better marriage or having better kids. Those things may come through your faith, but that's not our prize as Christians. As believers, our prize is knowing Christ the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, and becoming one with him. If that's not your prize, this is how you need to pray during this week. Father God, I have my soul set on these other small prizes, these other rewards that I look more forward to being reunited with my lost family members than I do about being in your presence, about knowing you face to face, Father, I need you to open my eyes to the realities of how wonderful the prize is of knowing and loving Jesus Christ. 
And this is what Paul does. He gives us an invitation as we close. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you before, and I'll say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and are headed for destruction. Oh, uh, and think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we eagerly await for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. After giving his story, his past, present, and what he's striving for in the future, Paul gives an invitation. He says, I want you to join me in imitating Christ. God has the power to save anyone for no matter what they've done, where they've been. But just because God saved you here does not mean that he wants you to remain here. We sang the song, Come As You Are. You can. It doesn't matter what you've done. When you call out to Christ in faith, no matter where you've been saved, God will bring you. He will free you from the penalty of sin. He will give you a hope and a future. But he's not going to be fine with you staying where you were when God saved you. And Paul says, there are some people in the church who prove because they do not repent from their sin that they are still stuck in their sin. And he says, I want you to join me. As I follow Christ, imitate me. We call this imitation discipleship. Discipleship is the invitation for imitation. And at Keystone, our goal is to make disciples who make disciples. The ministries that we have are not just to entertain your kids while you uh, worship in here, but we're trying to help our kids to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ. And so whether it's kidsmen or youthmen, the institute class downstairs, maybe it's care groups, maybe it's the men's retreat that's coming up, the women's retreat that's coming up, all of these environments are in place for us because we want to help people to mature in faith, grow in maturity. And in those environments, there's, there's going to be a time where we teach what the kingdom of God is like and a time when we train people in how to walk as citizens in God's kingdom. But you know this, more often than not, it's what's caught rather than what's taught that ends up changing us. More is caught than taught, meaning that you can feel uh, your head getting big and swollen with information but information is not going to lead to transformation all the time. What we need are models. We need examples. We need somebody who I'm saying, I'm willing, I'm like, I want to be like the Apostle Paul or someone who's following the Apostle Paul. And so in your sphere, there are probably people who you are maybe even subconsciously wanting to be like, model your life after. In Christianity, we call that discipleship. It's inviting others to say, I want you to come and I want you to see how I live.
I want you to come see and how I interact with my husband or how I interact with my spouse. I want you to come and see how I train and discipline my kids. I want you to come and see how I interact at work with my coworkers, how I treat my boss, how I treat the, the employees underneath me. I want you to come and I want you to see my checkbook. And I want you to see how I spend my money. I want you to come and see every part of my life because there's a part of me that wants you to join me as I pursue Christ. Discipleship does not need to be a complicated thing. You do not need to memorize First and Second Timothy in order to disciple somebody. What you need to do is to invite them into your life and let them see how you are following Christ. That's why discipleship happens in the home. Was it last week I said parents are the primary disciple makers in our kids? It's because they have the most time for the kids to see how they live. That's why I told the parents up here, it's not these big milestones that will shape their kids. It's the day in, day out, presence and posture that will model for the next generation what it's like to follow Christ. And so my invitation for you is to find someone whose life you believe is worth imitating. Get to know them, follow them, and as you do, you may find that your passion grows for knowing the Lord for becoming like him. And that means you're able to pick up your sword and fight these other sins before and after. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that what saves us is not our own effort, that we put no confidence in our flesh, that what saves us and what sustains us is faith, that we are saved by faith alone, by grace alone. I pray, Father, that our faith would grow, that we would mature, that that come-to-Jesus moment that may have happened a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, would not be the one evidence that we have, but that we might be able to point to decades of striving after our reward to know Jesus Christ and become like him, to even suffer for him because we love him so deeply. Father, I pray that you would free us from the kind of spiritual laziness that would not even commit to picking up our Bibles, the kind of spiritual lazy busyness that would be more diverted by the passions outside of knowing Christ than of knowing Christ. Father, I pray that you would guard us from becoming Christian zombies who are just going through the motions, numb to the joy of being able to know and love you. Father, we need your spirit to awaken us from a kind of spiritual sloth that only you can do. And I ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.